0: Okay. Anyway, it's the third Sunday in Advent, and over the past few weeks, what we've done is we've intentionally taken some time to pause, to take breath, to stop, to slow down, to reflect. There's something that we are wanting to capture of the rhythm of the preparatory season of Advent that we find ourselves in, um, really because it helps us remember, it helps us recover something of the mystery and the wonder. Uh, That Christmas really is all about and we've said over the last few weeks Advent is kind of like this liturgical signpost in the dark it points back to Jesus birth it points ahead to his return and it offers like this beacon of, of light and of hope in a season that is dark and on the one hand Advent is about celebrating the first coming of Jesus the birth of Jesus and at the same time It's all about pointing towards his second coming, the return of Christ when he will put everything right. And so um, Advent is all about celebrating the first coming, and and that fuels our sort of hope for uh, the fulfillment of the ages when he will come in all his glory uh, on his return, the second coming. And and so in kind of very true uh, vineyard now and the not yet kingdom theology, we find ourselves in this moment, living in this Tension between the now and the not yet, the now, if you like, of the advent, uh, of his first coming and the not yet of his return. And, and so in this season of advent, we want to do all that we can to reflect on the season, to take time to slow down, to take time to make space, to breathe, to, to intentionally choose to be um, unhurried and unharried and just to take some time to pause and take, Stock, and we've been looking at four themes uh, over Advent just to help guide us through these weeks. The first two weeks we looked at waiting and stillness, next week we'll be looking at feasting, Uh, but this week we're going to look at giving and uh, specifically giving in the context of the gift of God the gift of God given to us in a baby, um, in the baby Jesus, and then on through to. Uh, Jesus' ultimate gift to each one of us uh, through his death on the cross. Uh, but to start with, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. This is Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Corinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Advent, as we've looked at, um, means arrival. It means uh, coming. And for millions of uh, followers of Jesus around the world, Advent means the Lord is coming. He has come and he will come again. And with Jesus' Advent, with his arrival, wherever Jesus goes, he brings um, his kingdom. But like so much about the kingdom of God, it can often be a sort of a reversal of Perceptions, the way that the kingdom of God works is unlike anything that we recognize. One of the more difficult things for us sometimes to accept is, that reality, is the fact that reality may be the exact opposite of the way that we think things appear to be. Um, during the course of the day, on the very rare occasions that it appears, although today's uh, not a good example, well, that looks like uh, the sun moves around us. And we are the center of the universe. Uh, we know, of course, that it's, it's not the sun that moves, it's actually the, the ground, the earth beneath our feet that is moving all the time. Or sometimes when you look at the sun on the horizon, it appears to be huge, you know, and it looks so much bigger than it does when it appears overhead in the middle of the day. And of course, the sun hasn't grown, but our perception of it is that it seems bigger. If you've seen the moon over the last Few days. It's just been this huge, full sort of moon in the sky. It looks so much bigger than it usually does. But um, these are just examples of things that so many things that are just counterintuitive. The things aren't always uh, as they seem to be. I was reading the story about a U.S. pilot practicing uh, high-speed manoeuvres in a jet fighter, uh, and she turned the controls for what she thought was going to be a steep ascent, and ended up flying uh, very, very quickly and rapidly towards the ground. Uh, and she was totally unaware of the fact that she had been flying upside down. Uh, it's all too easy, it can be all too easy to perceive things, to be the exact opposite of what they actually are. And um, on, one, on, on occasion, we have everything upside down. Um, an old friend of ours, Mark McCoy, he used to be a worship leader out in California, he once said, if you want to know what the values of the kingdom of God are, take the values of the kingdom of the world and turn them upside down. We sometimes think that certain decisions are going to improve our lives and then we discover that they actually end up flying us straight into the ground. Uh, we think that certain things are going to set us free and they actually end up giving, getting us more caught up and more bogged down. And, and nowhere is this idea of our upside-down worldview, our upside-down universe, more apparent than in the narrative of the New Testament. The entire gospel is a complete and utter reversal. It's a reversal of all of our common expectations about how life really works. You can't read the gospels for very long, if at all, you know, without discovering that Jesus is, is, is like the ultimate subversive. You know, right from the very beginning, as we've just read, right from Jesus' birth, he's flipping everything on its head. We can see how in and through the birth of Jesus, God is subverting the kingdom of this world and heralding the kingdom of God. Jesus turns everything on its head. Jesus um, makes us rethink all of the popular misconceptions about the the, the way things work. So... You know, in the upside down uh, kingdom of Jesus, it's better to give than to get. You know, like scratching your head going, what kind of economics philosopher is Jesus? Better to give than to get. You know, that's going to surely ruin the economy. How does that even work? And we seem intent on creating a society of consumers. We just want to keep ratcheting up, ratcheting up our, our needs and our demands. You know, if we're thinking and rethinking the upside-down nature of the kingdom, just look at the people that are, who are impressed by God that Jesus is impressed by or spends time with in the Gospels. Who makes the most biggest impression on God? This young girl, Mary, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, some backwater. It's the shepherds. No one had time for shepherds. No one knew anything and cared anything about shepherds. And yet they're right there, front, front and center of the Nativity. Um, Jesus is impressed by the dishonest tax collector who climbs a tree to get a better view of him. He's impressed by the widow who places her last two coins in the offering basket. The more we plunge into the world of Jesus, the more we begin to see that many of our perceptions about the way things are and the way things should be are actually entirely upside down. It's then we begin to see life the way it really is. And nowhere is this upside down nature of the kingdom more evident, not only in the birth of Jesus in and through all of its obscurity, but also in the crucifixion of Christ, which is what we're going to look at today. Now, I know this may not be traditional Advent fair, you know, but having seen how Jesus comes into the world, let's kind of turn our attention to how he leaves it, and let's have a look at his death. Turn with me to John chapter 19. This is John chapter 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, O King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seats at the palace known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week. It was about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. You'll be familiar through being at carol services uh, over this season, way back in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, it had been prophesied that a king would come, Jesus would come as king, as the Messiah. And In Isaiah it says, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is is given and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end and this tiny baby that we see arriving in, in Luke's version Luke two and born in this stable in the middle of nowhere is going to rule and govern in peace forever. We kind of scratch our heads and go, Wow how is that possible? This man that we see here in John nineteen, beaten and flogged and mocked and made ready for execution, how is the kingdom, how is government Going to come to him how can you uphold justice and righteousness forever from a grave? the upside down nature of the kingdom? Um, there's a reversal of expectations in the kingdom as we begin, uh, we begin to see this reversal of expectation, expectations coming through the kingdom of God. You know where do we see the upside down kingdom of Jesus? You know, it's where our original perception of things are absolutely opposite, the absolute opposite to the way things really are. We see it in the beating and the mocking. You know, what you could call the so-called mock coronation of Jesus here in John 19, verses 1 to 3. There's so much of the kingdom of God here. You know, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to comprehend the, the ridicule that Jesus endures. And yet, when we look below the surface of this beating and the cursing that he's having to endure there's this incredible this great reversal taking place we see just through all of this the upside down kingdom of god breaking through you see the one who is being cursed jesus is himself destroying the curse that rests on all of creation you know what's the crown of thorns all about all the gospel writers refer to it. John 19, verse 2 says, The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. You know, what's that all about? What's going on here? You now, I reckon the soldiers, in their mocking, they did more than they knew. They were putting the very symbol of creation's curse on the head of Jesus. You know, those of you who remember, if you've read any of the Bible, you'll remember what happened after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. You know, the serpent was cursed, woman was cursed, man and his work were cursed. And because of it all, creation itself has been cursed. And what was the symbol of creation's curse but thorns growing up from the earth? You know, the way salvation uh, worked in the Old Testament was the way, of, the way that things were put right Um, was that a priest would place his hands on the head of an animal and by putting his hands on the head of this animal he's um, symbolically transferring the guilt uh, from a person who'd messed up and onto that animal and then the animal was then killed and I know all of that seems like pretty brutal to us in our minds today and I'm not here to get into the rights and wrongs of animal sacrifice you know after all what did the poor sheep do wrong but yet here is Jesus fully man, fully divine sacrificial lamb of God and what's placed on his head but the symbol of the curse the curse that's on the whole of creation the great reversal of the kingdom of God the one who is being cursed himself is destroying the curse that rests on creation the great reversal of the kingdom of God is that the one who is wearing a crown of thorns will one day give to the very people who mocking him and rejecting him and despising him, he will give to them a crown of glory. And then we see this other reversal, and that's the reversal in the nature of true true humanity. Have a look at uh, John 19, 4-6. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple robe, Pilate says to him, here is the man. The King James Version has it, behold The man, behold the man, and perhaps I don't know. Pilate intended to mock Jesus, you know, here's your accused, or perhaps it was designed as mockery towards the Jewish leaders, you know, here's the man that you're so afraid of, look at him, look, he's beaten, he's defeated, he's bleeding. But Pilate, like so many others of what's going on at the moment, they're speaking much more than they know. Pilate says, Behold. The man, and even though he may have intended some sort of mockery, he's actually speaking the truth because Jesus is very much man, the way that God intended for mankind to be. Uh, In the ancient world, conquerors would put images of themselves across lands that they conquered so that people could look at the image and say, We are under the rule and the reign of this particular king, this particular Caesar, this particular conqueror. And when God created men and women in his image, his intention was that creation would look to us, would look to men and women and say, ah, we are under the rule and reign of God. The problem is, as a result of our sin, we display a distorted image of God. Looking at us, one would not necessarily understand who God really is. Behold the man. Mankind the way God intended us to be. That's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. God intended our humanity, like his life, um, like the life of Jesus, to be given, to be spent, to be strength, employed in service to others. And so we give Freely because Jesus gave so freely. We give freely of our time, our energy, and our money, and we use our strength to serve and to lift up or to bless someone else. Jesus said, You know, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, but to give and to give his life as a ransom for many. The meaning of true humanity is to give, to give sacrificially, and we take. The model of Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many, and we give freely and generously and abundantly of ourselves in whatever ways we can. So we give of our time and we give of our energy and we give of our money and we give of ourselves for the sake of the King and his kingdom. And then in verse 9, we read these words this is a reversal of power. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate's talking about sort of truth and power. And he's saying, you know, don't you realize like I am the true king? I have the power. I am the representative. I am the authority. You know, but it's not always obvious who has power... It sometimes seems, you know, to us that it's the, I don't know, the wealthy businessman or woman who sits on all the boards, who has all the connections, um, who they the ones who have power. You know, it could be the politician who's just been elected to office. They're the ones who have power. These are the people who seem to have all the power. But in the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, he's reminding us that all power in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And we really need to go beneath the surface when we consider true power and recognize the real power is wherever God is. But you know, even as Christians, we can miss this. You know, we. So we talked about, you know, we're thinking about James, the book of James. We can so easily think that God is with the movers and shakers, you know, and we can try and manipulate things to hang out with what we perceive and who we perceive to be the good and the great, you know, as if that's going to make any difference in the scheme of things. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, we find the power of God is most often in the places of weakness and of failure and of shame. Where do we most often experience God personally you know we most often experience God when we are backed into a corner when our life is falling apart and we are so desperate that we don't know what else to do apart from cry out to him that's when we really experience God we experience God when we're suffering from some some long-term sickness and all of our support networks our friends they've all kind of gone away they've all moved on they've all got tired We've got no other place to turn apart from to God and we cry out to him. We, we experience God in places of real shame and real failure. You know, when we've totally stuffed up and we've blown ourselves up, that's where we experience the power of God. If we let him into those places of our shame and our failure... When was it that the prodigal son began his journey back to the father? It wasn't when he had all his money. It wasn't when he was partying. It wasn't when he had all the women that he wanted. The prodigal son began his journey back to the father when he was in a pigsty and he'd lost everything. In the upside-down kingdom of Jesus, the, the power of God is much less obvious to us when we are on top of the world and all our ducks are in a row and everything is going right But the power of God is very visible to us when we are in the pit of despair. And and we're lower, we're more desperate, we're more broken than the cross. You know, in the upside down kingdom of Jesus is not always obvious what was going on at the cross. Have a look at verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. In Latin, it's called Calvary. There's Jesus bearing the, the wood of the cross just kind of like Isaac did in the Old Testament, carrying the wood uh, for him to be sacrificed on in Genesis 22. Um, here they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate has this notice prepared and fastened on the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus is crucified is near the city and the sign is written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate do not write the king of the Jews but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews Pilate answered I have written what I have written and we can look at the cross and just see it as this tragic ending this tragic death of this innocent man and yet in the upside down kingdom of God the tragedy isn't what's happening to Jesus um, but what's happening to all the people around Jesus who are rejecting him as Messiah and Savior that's the tragedy who's the tragic figure, um, the reality is it's us if we choose to reject Christ. You know, wherever we slam the door in Christ's face, we become the tragedy. The tragic figure is are actually the people rejecting Jesus, not Jesus himself. John refers to the cross not as a tra- tragedy, but as a lifting up of Christ. It's the means by which Jesus is glorified. And um, the Romans wrote the crime Oh, that the condemned man was guilty of over their head, so that everyone could look at someone being crucified and say, That's something that could get me crucified. Note to self, don't do that. And so they'd write over somebody's head, you know, like robber or thief or murderer or political rebel or whatever it may be. And ironically, what do they write over the head of Jesus? The king of the Jews. And what's interesting is that the kingship of Jesus is announced, is announced in three languages. Uh, it's in Aramaic, which is the language of the Jewish people at the time, which is the language of everyday, ordinary life. In other words, Jesus is not just the king of religion, not just the king of church, the king of Bible study and prayer and fasting and baptism and all those things. Jesus is the king of your ordinary, everyday life. It's his desire to extend his reign over all of our lives, every part of our lives, not just our church bits, every bit of our lives, over our work and over what we put in our mouth to eat and over what comes out of our mouths as we speak. In our marriage and if you're single, in our relationships and and on and on and on. It's every single part of our everyday lives. Jesus is the king of ordinary life. And the sign was also written in Greek, and Greek was the language of culture and philosophy and highbrow thinking and intellectualism. And Jesus is the king not only of everyday life, but Jesus is the king of culture and intellectual pursuits and academia and research and art, the arts and music. He's, he's king of a diverse culture. You know, Jesus wants to rule and extend his reign so that all Points of culture um, recognize that it's Jesus who is king. And, you know, some would say that God is using Kanye West for that very thing right now. Extending God's rule and reign of culture into a different kind of culture. And finally, the sign was written in Latin. Uh, Latin was the language of governmental affairs. It was the language of Roman Power and and Christ is king over all authority, king over all governments, which, depending on your political persuasion, uh, you may be very reassured to hear uh, after the events of this week. And that, that because Christ is king over all governments, over all authority. Things will unfold according to his plan in good time. You know, it's not, this isn't about Johnson or about Corbyn. This isn't about Trump and impeachments. This isn't about the politicians and the the lobbyists. They don't hold the real power. Jesus Christ is our king. Jesus Christ is king of the ordinary. He's king of knowledge. He's king of power. And um, the cross becomes a means of proclaiming Jesus kingship over every realm of life he's the king of religion no um, religion is higher than the religion centered on Jesus he's the king of philosophy no philosophy no no intellectual organization is greater than King Jesus he's the king of the world he rules over every government the cross isn't a humiliation the cross is a means of glory um, But at this Advent, as we take time to stop and to pause, as we think about and celebrate his birth this Christmas, do we see this baby lying in a manger as king? That's kind of the question, let me ask you that. You see this baby born in a stable, and then you see him 30-odd years later hanging on a cross. Do you say to yourself, "This, this baby, this man hanging on a cross... Yeah, he's, he's the king, and he's my king. Because it's in the upside-down universe of God, the kingdom of God, it's, it's only the eyes of faith that can say, yeah, he's my king. Jesus is my king. And not only my king, that's, that's my king over every aspect of my life. He's, he's king over my time and my energy and my money, and my everything. He rules, he reigns. Supreme. And as He has given His all for me, what else can I do but give my all for Him? Do you realize that the cross is actually your means, our means um, for our glory? You know, none of us will become the best versions of ourselves through. Um, self-assertion through grabbing through demanding by manipulating cajoling or whatever each one of us we become the very best versions of ourselves that we can be the very best version of ourselves created and designed by God by taking on the life of Jesus and giving ourselves in self-sacrifice laying everything down putting it all down Laying everything that we are, everything that we have at the foot of the cross, giving our time, giving our energy, giving our money, spending ourselves, wasting ourselves in pursuit of the king and his kingdom. The upside down nature of the kingdom of God is, um, is one of self-denial, something that this culture just loves to bits, and it's, um, it's all about allowing our self-will and our selfishness to evaporate and disappear because the cross isn't a place of tragedy the the, the cross is a place of glory when we go to the cross and find Jesus and when we go to the cross and we decide that it's time time for God's will to be done in our lives and not ours that's not a tragedy that's a glory that's where the upside down kingdom of Jesus really starts to get interesting that's the place where we really start living as God intended why don't you stand we'll have our amazing band back